This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And today I have the absolute pleasure of having a good friend in the studio with me, Eric Platt, who's president of Artisans and Vines. And gosh, Eric, you and I go back pretty far. I'm going to say 15, 18 years, somewhere in that range. Yeah, I was going to say about 15. Yeah, back when I was writing for The Examiner. Yeah. Right. You know, and you uh, you came to me with these uh, wacky wines that I'd never even heard of before. I won't say wacky, but, you know, I was not familiar with the portfolio that you were representing back then. And it was just really you were kind of like a little wine Svengali for me, really introducing me to some stuff I hadn't had before and some absolutely some regions I'd never had before. It was a beginning of a beautiful friendship, a wine friendship. I would agree. Yeah. Which has actually morphed into a wonderful personal relationship. So I'm really thrilled that you're here today. I'm thrilled to be here. I appreciate the invite. Oh, no worries. So I mentioned that you were president of Artisans and Vines. What is Artisan and Vines? So we're an import company. Okay. Uh, we're also a distributor uh-huh. in this in this region, in D.C. and Maryland. So basically, Scott, the, stor- the story of Artisans and Vines, I'll give you a quick background. Uh, it was an existing company that... Um, and we can talk a little bit about the import side of, of the business. And we will. And we will. But it was it was associated with one distributor. Imagine if an import company or any business was doing 95% of their business with one partner. Right. And then that partner goes out of business. Right, right. So Artisans and Vines was, was kept sort of afloat by um, the two owners. Okay. But they didn't have any distributors. But anyway, I was introduced to them in 2015, Mm -hmm. and long story short, I bought into the import company in March of 16. Okay. Um, And on the import side, on the import side. Okay. And we've been doing great. You know, every year we've been growing significantly. Um, Most recently, in May, we started our own distribution company. So So now a distributor as well. Distributor so, as well. Okay, so you don't have to rely on a partner distributor. You can actually import and distribute. Correct. By the way, is that unique to our area, or is that kind of found across the country where people can import and distribute? That's becoming much more common. You're you're seeing that across the country, and it it really gets into you know how do importers, how do distributors not only make money, but how do they become effective in a market that's controlled by you know, big distributors, you know, the Southerns, the the Republic Nationals of the world. Right. How do you compete with the big retailers? And it's really, in many ways, do it yourself, you know. So even big distributors are doing some importing themselves so they can capture the margin there. Right. And then they can add on the distributor margin and right. basically capture two margins. Right. So, you know, what we're doing is a little bit of the same in the home market, you know, to be competitive and to really take control really control the success of our own brands locally where mm-hmm. we have control is be able to import them and distribute them locally. So we can we can capture in a sense two margins, but we can also be very competitive by in some cases merging the two margins together. Right. If that makes sense. It does. It does make sense. So yeah. your the brands you're importing though, they have to have a lot of confidence in you because you know you're they're, you're now responsible for not just importing them, but also distributing them. So there's, you know, they're placing a little bit of faith in, in your ability to make sure that you can, you know, sell their brands. Right, right. And then the other, you know, for some of the brand, most of the brands that we import, we have for the whole United States. 
what we're trying to do is find distributor partners for these brands in throughout other regions. In other regions. Yeah, okay. And even locally, we do have distributor partners locally. Okay. But at the same time, as distributors' books are getting so big, you know, we can't find homes for all of our products, right? Mm-hmm. Even locally. Mm-hmm. So what we decided to do is take some of our brands and distribute them ourselves. So we've taken... So part of our portfolio is with other distributors, even locally. But some of our new brands, we've decided, you know what? Let's put those in our own book and build our own distribution book so that we can now, you know, yeah. if nobody wants to take our brands, you know, locally, You'll we're going to do, do it ourselves. Yeah, we've only been doing that really in the state of Maryland since May. And you know, you and you and I, you know, both have a lot of uh, mutual friends on the retail side of the business. Absolutely, especially in DC. Yep. So one of the things that we're doing, you know, with a lot of my old relationships, is we have distributors selling our products. But then some of our products that are not in distribution, I'm able to sell those direct to our friends like at Schneider's right, or which Calvert is Woodley. Kinda- Unique in the D.C. market. That is very unique for the D.C. market, yeah, right. compared to lots of places in the country. For, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. In the D.C. Exactly. market. You've mentioned taking two margins and merging them into one, you know, kind of. Talk for just a second, and really just a second, on the three-tier system, because a lot of consumers don't realize that when you're buying wine, sort of what, particularly an import, um, how many steps that kind of goes through before it gets you know, into your brown paper bag on the way home? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And we, um, you know, sometimes when I'm doing private wine tastings for consumers, I line up like six glasses to show them, uh, you know, the sort of the supply chain. I'm like, all right, this is the winery. This is the <laughs> importer. Important. Okay, and, you keep know, going. I want to hear this. So. <laughs> yeah. So it's like six glasses lined up. You know, you start with, okay, this is the winery. This is the importer. This is actually a distributor. This is a retailer, and this is you, the consumer, you know? Yeah. And it helps them understand a little bit of um, the supply chain. And, how and the, everybody gets paid along the way. And everybody gets right? paid along the, the way. The winery gets paid, the importer gets paid, yep. the distributor gets paid, the retailer gets paid. Yeah. And then you get The a consumer drink. doesn't get paid. <laughs> no. Maybe they get paid with good wine. That's right. You know, that's what we hope. Right. So, and those are the challenges. And I think, you know, everybody's looking at... You know, when we talked about merging, you know, merging things together, basically, the idea is, you know, how do you remain competitive, mm-hmm. right? So an importer, you know, distributors, importers, producers are all looking at different ways to- And retailers. And retailers to work around the three-tier system right. because there's just a lot of wine out there, as you know, mm-hmm. and there aren't the channels to get these wines to market. How does the producer, you know, so we start with the producer- how does the producer look at America now compared to way, the way they looked at it, you know, 10, 20 years ago? So that's a pretty interesting story. So a lot of producers are now looking at the United States as 50 different countries in a sense, right? So right. I, I got a Provine, which is, um, it's one of the, it's the largest wine trade show in the world and it takes place in Dusseldorf, Germany every March, like mid-March. And I'll meet producers that we already work with, and I'll also meet some producers that are new, you know, potentially new and people right. that have reached they're looking, out to They're looking me. for a way into the market. Right. And some of them already do business in America, but they'll, but they'll come to me and they say, hey, we know you're based in Washington, D.C., and we don't have anybody for the mid-Atlantic, but we have somebody in California, somebody in Texas that actually imports for us in, and distributes in those areas. 
So it's very interesting. And I've seen this only, you know, I would say in the last five years where Mm -hmm. producers around the world are looking at America as instead of finding one importer for the United States, they're saying, you know what, I'm going to try and find four or five to, you know, regionally focus on my stuff. You know, so that that's one thing producers are doing. Interesting. Yeah. And and I guess that they're more interested in certain regions than others. I would imagine they're interested in the West Coast, Mid-Atlantic, Florida, Texas are, are the big wine markets. So do they concentrate when they go to these large uh, conventions like Provine? Do they try to seek out people in those markets? I think historically they did and some still do. But I think many are looking at America again differently. Because they've learned that, like, okay, yeah, it would be great to be in New York, but New York's crowded, yeah. you know? Maybe I can be a bigger fish in Washington, D.C., because I've learned a little bit from, you know, talking to people that the D.C. region is pretty happening. D.C., Maryland, yeah, Virginia. We, we like our wine here. We like our wine. And, and people in Washington are cultured. They're educated. They like yeah. food. They like wine. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> we like to tell that story. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So they, they're looking at the Washington, D.C. market and, and maybe lesser known markets, but still affluent markets. I have to imagine like maybe North Carolina, right? I mean, North Carolina is a great market. And, and they can maybe, you know, when they talk to somebody like myself, you know, when we're looking at people and they say, well, we just we really want to talk to you about the mid-Atlantic. And I'll say, well, you know, we do business in 20 states. So I'd really like the ability possibly try and sell your wines in some other states in the region, like North right. Carolina or right. South Carolina, where our business is growing. Right. You know, and they might say, well, we already have somebody in the Southeast that kind of handles that. And then as an importer, we might make the decision and say, you know what, your wines are great, but it might not fit for what we do because we want to grow. Yes, we want to grow in the right. mid Atlantic, but we want to grow outside of this region as well. It's a bit well. of a dance. Yeah, a yeah. little bit of a dance. Yep. Okay. Because it has to be good for them, good for you. Yep. Yeah, it. and we have a producer that we work yeah. with, you know, from Portugal, to give you an idea. And okay. they work with other people around the country, but the wines were great. They fit, and it's a, it's been a great relationship. Now, when we want to open another state, we just check with them, and we say, hey, look, you know, are you doing business in Alabama? And they say, actually, no. Well, then and that's yours. Then I, we'd like to present your wines there. Okay, cool. And I think you did a podcast recently with uh, Ann Charlotte from uh, Fontaloupe. Yes. So... For instance, she has other people that she works with around the country, but she is just uh, such a charming woman. Oh, with my a, gosh. She was great. And yeah. the wines are great. The wines are amazing. And right? we're, having, we're having great success with them. The north side of La Croix. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, north-facing slopes. North-facing slopes. That's right. Um, but So she doesn't do business in Illinois, okay. Chicago, oh. at this point. So we said to her, we said, we have a potential partner there. And she said, I would love for Artisans and Vines to present my wines to your distributor partner in Illinois. So mm-hmm. now we're branching out with her wines into some other regions, cool. even though we started the relationship more limited geographically. Well, as I told you before we even started the podcast, I, as you know, I was in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago. Right? Your, old, your old stomping grounds, yes, right? Yes, yes. Uh, met these wonderful people, very small, organic, biodynamic farm wonderful wines. They're really putting out some good stuff and said, Hey, are you in the United States? And they said, we're only on the West coast right now. We're in Los Angeles and and San Diego, but we'd really love to find somebody uh, on the, on the East coast. And, you know, so hopefully maybe uh, I can hook you up with them. They're lovely people. And just, uh, we'll talk after the show. 
But, you know, let's back up a little bit, Eric, because I always ask people this question because there's always that moment. You, you, Have you always been in wine? Like, did you come straight out of college and, and right into wine? Or, or did you do something before you got, quote, into wine? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. I um, started out working in the restaurant business okay. at the age of 15. Um, not unusual. Not unusual. Right. I was bussing. My first job was bussing tables at uh, Congressional Country Club. Oh, wow. Locally. Okay. So I was in high school, worked there, and kind of worked my way through the restaurant business, busboy, waiter, bartender, bartender, you know, through high school, through college. And then after college, I thought that I would stay in it and one day opened my own restaurant. And I came to this uh, fork in the road. Uh, I was working at, do you remember... There was a um, steakhouse in D.C. called Joe and Moe's. Of course. Okay. So yeah. do you remember when they opened up their uh, Bethesda location? This would this would have been- No. This would have been like 86. Yeah. No, I, I don't recall a Bethesda location. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Is there a reason I don't recall yeah, exactly, a Bethesda location? Exactly. Okay. I think it was there. I think it was there for two years, oh, and it was a, okay. it was a little before its time. But anyway, in '86, I had lived in LA for about a year after uh-huh. college, bartending, and I came back and I got a job at Joe and Moe's, their suburban location, and helped open it. And while I was working there, I was presented with an opportunity to go work for the Kronheim Company. So this was my fork in the road. So the Kronheim right. Company was one of those. You know, old distributors that, right. you know, old Milton Kronheim yeah. was yeah, yeah. Uh, involved in, you know, bootlegging booze. You know, <laughs> Theoretically. During allegedly. 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 <laughs> Correct. You got to be careful here, buddy. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So I, so it was a fork in the road and I ended up taking the other fork and instead of staying in the restaurant business, I went into distribution. Okay. And so that was in... That was at the ripe old age of 23 in wow. 87. So you have been in wine. Pretty much. Well, you know, early most of your adult life. Yeah. So in '87, though, it was spirits, it was beer, and I, and then it was, um, you know, most of the wine that I was selling was kind of jug wine. It was okay. Almaden, it was Inglenook, it was yeah. cooking wine. And then what's really interesting is we were at the forefront of talking to restaurants about wines by the glass. It was like a whole new tier. Like we would go into, you know. It could be a place like Clyde's. And it was a new concept. It was a whole new concept. It was like, okay, you guys are using Almaden 4-liter Chablis as your house wine. We have a new concept. It's called Wine by the Glass, like another level. And we're going to offer you Glen Ellen or Fetzer. And instead of charging $4 a glass, you can charge $4.50 a glass. And we would get these little like cards printed and you could clip it onto the menu. It It was fascinating how it evolved. Wow. So anyway, so that was my first. So again, it was it was spirits, beer, and then wine, and the, and and then again, as you know, wine became more important and so forth. But then I got mm-hmm. into uh, you know beer distribution, and then I got into retail. I ran Wagshalls over by AU yep. for a few years, and then I got my first job working for uh, Bobby Catcher in '97, wow. which was my first the Bobby Catcher, the Bobby Catcher, Catcher Selections, Catcher Selections. So. Um, that kind was, of a pioneer, really, in this area, at least. He was kind of a local legend. Because yeah, he was really sure. the first of uh, the people in this area to really kind of do that concept of importing very, very specific wines. And actually, as I recall, and actually, I think you introduced me to Bobby, if I'm not mistaken. Possible. I th- no, I think you did. All right. Uh, I'll and, take credit for it. I was absolutely fascinated that Bobby would go over to Europe and help people rehabilitate their vineyards. 
in order to make better wine before he would actually agree to import it. It's just a fascinating guy. Anyway, so you worked for Bobby. Fascinating guy. So I had been, I had gotten back into management at the wholesale level. Okay. And then Bobby knew me from my retail days. And as as his business was growing, you know, he he came to me and he said, "Hey, you know, my business is growing, and I need somebody to take care of DC." And so in '97, I became his DC guy. Wow. You know, dealing with a lot of the yeah. friends that we talked about. Yeah. And three months in, we had a guy that was based in Chicago who was handling the Midwest. He mm-hmm. quit. And I said to Bobby, I said, you know, I, could, I think I could do the Midwest. And he said, I think, I think you can too. So that's when I became the man from afar with a briefcase. You know, I'd, right. three weeks a month, I'd be in uh, D.C. managing the top restaurants and retailers for him. Right. And then one week a month, I would go to, um, I'd go to like Minnesota, <laughs> for a week, I you know I, I used to say I'd parachute in, sell a lot of wine, and uh, I'd and I'd get out. And then the next week, next month, I'd go to uh, I'd do DC for three weeks, and then I'd go to Milwaukee and Madison for a week. Right. And so that's how I built up sort of um, a little bit of a following and and yeah. built up his portfolio in the Midwest. Yeah. So that was that was great. And then uh, incredible cool. incredible experience working for him and learning a lot and and really at that point really learning about wine you know that's when i really when i was early in my career you, i was selling you, it you but selling i didn't it, yeah. i didn't really know a lot about it at that point you know and then in 2000 i um i got another job and that led me uh to robert whale who which you, is when, how when we met that was when we met when i was right. doing uh australia and new zealand Really that cool. Point. Really cool portfolio. Yeah. yeah. Kind of yeah. a, again, another guy who was a pioneer and a little bit yeah. ahead of his time related to Australia, especially. He you know. really was. I yeah. mean, you know, he was the first person I ever knew that was bringing those wines into our area. Yeah. And he, it was really about regionality. It was about cool climate. It yep. was about, uh, you know, smaller producers. It wasn't about just Australia as the country. It was, a, yeah. you know, and now, you know, now we have brands from Australia in the Artisans and Vines portfolio, you know, which I brought into this, to the right. mix. And it reminds me of those days. And Australia is coming back strong now. It went through a tough time. Yeah. It's coming back now with a lot of things that Robert Whale was talking about 15 years ago, which right. was regionality, cool climate, different varietals. It's right. not all one country. It's not like, just Shiraz anymore. It's not just Shiraz. And it's, it's, uh, right. he was a big personality. Yeah. Yeah. He was a big, big <laughs> I worked so, for a couple of big personalities. <laughs> so you, I'm going to back up again yeah. for just a second because you said something kind of interesting. You said, in the beginning, wine was just sort of a means to an end, right? I was just selling it. And then under uh, Bobby Catcher, you really kind of went, aha, you had an aha moment. Was there a particular wine? Was there a moment where you went, ah, right, <laughs> that's the stuff? Yeah, there were probably a few of those, but I- What was you know, a memorable one? One of the- Certainly, uh, you know, I have memories of visiting Burgundy and tasting, uh, you know, producers like Seraphin and Le Chenot, and you would taste some of these incredible Burgundies in the cellar, and they would tell you, if you don't finish the glass, you know, please pour it back in the barrel. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, it's pretty valuable stuff. Right. Right? So I had that experience. Yeah. I remember things like that, and I also remember uh, Andre Brunel from Chateauneuf de Pop. Oh, wow. Was, uh, Quite memorable yep. uh, wines and experience down there. You got in, huh? That's got, interesting. Well, I knew somebody. Yeah. I knew somebody that knew somebody. Yeah, you had yeah, to. That's right. But, you know, I also, 
you know, for me, I think those were the aha moments for me. Mm-hmm. And I also had learned a lot about wine from at retail. You know, that's from 95 to 97. You know, now I had a lot of salespeople presenting wine to me. And the really good salespeople were actually educating me on wine. You know, instead of yeah. me selling like a portfolio, uh-huh. I was now being presented with a lot of wines. And that's where I started really like learning about wine. And then Catcher took it to another level, especially on the French side. Right. So, you know, we, you kind of had, um, I wouldn't say one wine aha experience or a moment. You really kind of had this evolution uh, that you went through. What about recently? Have you had an aha moment recently? Are there any areas that you're you're excited about right now where you've had wines you went, okay, that's cool. Uh, I, I see this as a really cool place to be importing wines from. I would say, you know, it's uh, it's funny. I think I have those moments all the time. But as an importer, I have to temper sometimes the, that excitement right. and think about business. you fall in love with everyone. You do. You do. And Provine is a, is a great example of meeting producers from all over the world and, and, and just doing some amazing things. And they all want to get into America somehow. And as a business person, we have to just constantly look at, you know, lots right. of different things. You know, are the wines good? Of course. Right. Will How they do they sell though, right? Will they, will they sell? How's the packaging? How's the pricing? How the terms? And what about, about the supply too, right? Because I mean, there's smaller producers that may not just have enough juice to go around. Yeah, and the, and the, the big thing are, are are these people we want to work with? Are these going to be right. partners? You know, so there's a lot of things to look at, and and so I have to sometimes temper my excitement. But I will tell you, and we'll get to some of the wines that I brought you today. Yes, because we I want to get to these. Yeah, because <laughs> we have three beautiful yeah. wines in front of us. I would say for me, because I worked in the Australian New Zealand category for a long time, some of the regionality. Um, some of the areas that we're importing and what I see from right. Australia as it's emerging, re-emerging as a category again, right. that's really exciting to me. You well, know, Yeah. And I was just, again, in addition to being in New Zealand, I was also in yeah. Australia, tasted some really cool stuff while I was there. So I'm getting excited about Australia again. There was this kind of maybe a, I don't know, about a decade uh, kind of hole in my palate, if you will, for lack of a better word, where Australia had kind of come and gone. And now it's coming back, and, and I'm really excited about what's going on in Australia. Yeah, I, I am as well. And I think, you know, it, it, was, um, it was really a perfect storm of what hit the Australian wine category. You know, it was the exchange rate 10 oh, years yeah. ago, right? And so the yeah. American dollar was strong. Australian dollar was not. You had the parkerized wines, right. you know, at the high end. And then you had the yellowtail at the low end. And so the American consumer was just— Not that there's anything wrong with yellowtail. Just, I'm just putting it I'll out there. I'll take the fifth on that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong. Incredible it, it, marketing it's, story. It's, it certainly sells a lot. Incredible marketing story. So, we'll leave it at that. Okay, good. All right, moving on. <laughs> but there were a lot of things that really hurt that category. So I'm excited as, as well about uh, its reemergence and the people, the place. And, and when I do private tastings for people, they're just amazed by Australia and New Zealand because of the, you know, how far away it is and how interesting it is. And, and you know, so many of our friends want to go there and yep. they just haven't been because it's far, it's expensive, you know, different reasons. Yeah, so, but I so. can't wait to go back either. Right. I, I had a blast. It was, the people are unbelievably friendly Yeah, and, and the wines are good and, you know, you can kind of fall in love pretty easily. I'm amazed that, I, I, I get that you're a businessman. I get you have to kind of pick and choose what you can import and what you think will sell and all of that stuff. Um, 
To me, it would be like canine rescue. I'd just take them all. (laughs) (laughs) Buy a big ranch and just take them all. You see importers that do that, and they become collectors, and and it's... It's um, yeah. it can be tough. You yeah. you do. I call keep, it wine goggles. Yeah, you you can fall into that <laughs> trap pretty easily. Right, no question. So you have you said you're excited about Australia. We have three wines in front of us. I'm pretty excited about trying these. And now comes the portion of our show where we got to try the wines. Excellent. All right. Excellent. So um, walk me through this. I see that we've got three. In, is this a rosé we're starting with? That is a rosé. Cool. So this is uh, 2019 Scarlet Lady Bird. 2019. I can Eric, we're still that. in 2019. <laughs> that's right. Granted, this is the very last day of 2019. Yes. But. That, that's true. It's, okay. a, it's a beautiful thing. So 2019. One of the, one of the nice, I'm sorry. I, yeah. I cut you off. 2019 what? So this is a rosé made with Sangiovese grape. And who's, who's the producer? The producer is Zante's Footstep. Cool. So name. this is uh, from outside of McLarenville, and it's an, you know talking about how things come come around. Wow! This is an old friend of mine, Brad Ray, who used to be at Coriol in McLarenville, where he was the marketing and, and winemaker, okay. and and he's been at Zante's, and this is his own brand. And when he found out that I had my own import company, you know, we got together, and we said so we got to get the band back together. So Zante's um, came aboard to Artisans and Vines a couple of years ago. They just went through a major package change. The yeah, Scarlet, it's a cute label. Yeah, great packaging. We're just kicking these off now. Um, Scarlet Ladybug. Ladybird. Ladybird. Yes. It looked like a ladybug. Yeah, it I'm does. It okay, does. so Scarlet but, Ladybird. Yeah, and, to, and for your listeners, you know, for the average consumer, you know, you're right, 2019, how is that? Yes, how is that? <laughs> While I drink this wine, please tell us how is that? So, I feel like I'm in a time machine. I'm I going know. back to well, Exactly, exactly. So the harvest takes place, you know, March, April for many wineries in Australia. So what we do is we have to plan way far in advance where we, um, you know, we'll say to Brad, hey, we want that rosé and we want to release it in March of 2020 in a right. sense. Okay. Right? So when they harvest 2019 – right? In March of 19. Right. What they do is they keep it in tank and then they'll bottle it sometime in the fall of 19. Okay. They'll hold on because to it. Because their harvest is six months earlier than There's, Their harvest is six months. You're right. So this, when you were there- we're upside down or they're right side up. I can't I remember. think we're, right now we're upside down <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so they, they harvest six months before we do. They do. In so North they're, America. So they're, so they're now in summer as we're getting ready, you know, we're moving, we've moved into winter. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we ship this, you know, late fall of 19, it arrives here and we're, we're ready to, uh, to hit the market with it. As soon as February, March, early spring hits, we're going to be one of the first rosés to hit the market. I'll take six bottles. This is amazing. Six bottles. Six bottles because we only do I don't want to fall in love with <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take 12. This right. is amazing. I mean, so first of all, strawberry, rhubarb, beautiful um, violet notes on the nose. Just absolutely super aromatic. Yeah, beautiful um, wine. Beautiful wine. And then you're, you're like, okay, well, this is, you know, it smells pretty, but, and then, wow, in the mouth. Yeah, great juicy, color. great beautiful. acidity. I mean, this is the kind of wine that is goes great with both a hammock and with food. Yeah. Right? I was going to say a porch. Yep. 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 Yeah, I won't. Patio. There, was, there was actually somebody in <laughs> Australia, they called it a porch pisser. I don't know if you've <laughs> nice. ever heard that term. I'd never heard that term of art before, but 
Uh, or a batch. Yeah. I just, uh, I think this is a, a spectacular wine to just, you know, it'd be fun to take on a picnic. It's a great picnic wine. Great picnic wine. Yep. So this would retail for about 20 bucks. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful rosé. Yeah, yeah. That's stunning. And what what are the uh, varieties in so it? So this is Sangiovese. 100%. 100%. They're growing Sangiovese in Australia? Yep. As you, um, as you Shut probably- Shut the front door. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. They're the Aussies. That's crazy. So as you know, because you were just there, the climate is is perfect for a lot of Italian varietals. Yeah, so, but I'd, I'd never heard of a Sangiovese ever in Australia. Yeah. This is my first. There you go. Wow. All right. And it's gentle. So it's pretty cool. It's it's pretty cool wine. Wow. And Brad is, Brad is not only, I mean, you can see on the labels, he does some incredible marketing. The names are great, but he's really, really innovative with the varietals that he's planting. So wow. we're excited wow. about that. Yeah, you should be. That's a great wine. All right, what do you got in number two? So also, you know, keeping it a little different and showing you some different things from Australia, this is also from Zante's Footsteps, and this is the Love Symbol Grenache. So this is 100% Grenache. Okay, well, you know, Grenache, that's not so unusual, right? Because Australia's known for GSMs. Yep, yep. For yeah. sure. Grenache, Syrah, Mavedras. Yeah. Right? So, so this, this is, so we've been selling Zante's- um, By the way, where, what region is this from? I'm this sorry. is McLaren Vale. Okay. So McLaren Vale is, the way I describe it, so it's just outside of Adelaide. Right. So Sydney to Adelaide, give you an idea, that's about a thousand miles. Mm-hmm. So it's about a three hour plane ride. And when you get to Adelaide, if you go inland and north a little bit, you get to the Barossa Valley. Mm-hmm. Barossa, Barossa. Uh, potato, potato. Exactly. So a little bit warmer, warm days, mm-hmm. not as not a bit as big diurnal shift in the Barossa Valley. McLaren Vale gets a more coastal influence. influence yep. Right. So you have a bigger diurnal shift, daytime temperature, nighttime temperature. So I like to describe McLaren Vale wines as they have the power of the Barossa Valley with a more elegant presentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and these two wines from Zantes are actually new wines for us in America from Zante's. Okay, so that is a, a, a very lighter styled Grenache, still pretty juicy. And a lot of, you know, getting a pretty pretty good sized cherry uh, berry thing going on. Yeah, um, some nice earthiness to it as well. It is. It, you know, I'm not getting the, the pepper pop that, you know, you sort of get in Syrah and some Grenache. Yep. But this is, this is what I would kind of describe as maybe a little bit more elegant. Mm. Does that make sense? Elegance a great word. For this Grenache? Yeah. Yeah. I love this wine. Um, I think this is going to do great for us. Grenache is hot. It's it's uh, it's so versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, this also would retail for about 20 bucks as well. So you can see there's just mm-hmm. some really exciting wines coming out of Australia. What's the vintage and on this one? This is, I think this is 2017. You're going to cheat and look at the bottle. I am. It is 17. Okay. Yep. All right, so a little, a little bit older than the 19. <laughs> yes, yes. And this, this one's about 12 months in, in barrel. So it sees some oak. It does see some oak. Okay. But, you know, again, what's nice about this one, and I didn't, I didn't bring Shiraz from Zante's, which is obviously their, their focus, just like, you know, from that area of Australia. But their wines are so well balanced. You know, great acidity, great food wines. They're not over the top. And I think that was a style from Australia that – people were very accustomed to. And now you're seeing, again, we talked about regionality, but now you're seeing balance, acidity, food wines. You know, just great. The third wine smells like a cab. It is a cab. 
an Australian cast. Yeah, so they're all Australian. Well, I figured you were just no, there. No, no, no. Why not do Australia? I, right, mate. So, but now we're taking a trip 2,000 more miles west, and we're going to Perth. And just when wow. we think we're Australia almost- Australia is huge. It's huge. It's the same size as the U.S., Yeah, but only 22 million people. Imagine. Right. right. Imagine that, right? Right. Less than a tenth. <laughs> That's right. I think we have 22 million people just uh, on the eastern seaboard, yeah. from New York down to maybe North Carolina. Yeah. So this is, it's funny when I tell people, you know, where this is. I mean, this is literally halfway around the world from where we are now. This is Margaret River, the main naturalist. Oh, yeah, sure. Margaret River. So Bruce Dukes, he's the proprietor and winemaker, consulted with the... Uh, you know, a number of top wineries, uh, Lewin Estate, as you know, Voyager, before- Super famous. Super famous, before doing his own thing. Um, and he was just he was just uh, written up by James Halliday, sort of the guru of wine writing in Australia, yeah. as the wine value, winery value of the year by oh. James Halliday in Australia. That's big. Yeah. So, so, when, so when, you're, when you're in Perth- and you think you're almost there, you're going to hop in a car and go three hours south. Oh, my gosh. And that's Margaret River. And this, what's, what's amazing about this wine, Scott, is it's, it's where the Indian Ocean, warm, meets the great southern ocean, cold, cold right? coming up from yeah. Antarctica. You yep. have this huge shift in temperature, day and night. And it's just this world-class region for Cabernet and Chardonnay especially. Not so much for Shiraz, a little less so. Um, but they still do it. They call it Syrah because of the style. Right. But Cab and Chard especially, oh, and beautiful. this Cab wow. is that's incredible. Really good. So this is the Rebus Cab. So it's not his entry level, but it's one level up. Okay. And this would retail for, you know, low low 30s. So remind me what we're drinking. What's so the this is vintage? The, and... Yeah, this is the Domaine Naturaliste Rebus Cabernet 2016 from Margaret River. Mm. Mm. Delicious. So, interesting. It, it does have a little bit of a tomato leaf pop on the nose. Uh, in addition to the other sort of what you would expect in a traditional Cabernet. But the mouthfeel, again, you've got a little bit of that elegance shining through, not a typical, what I would say, Cali, Cali Cab. N nothing wrong with that. Love Cali Cabs. But this is um, maybe a little bit more of an elegant style of Cali Cab. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Um, a friend of mine from Australia used to call it, imagine you're walking through a forest and you close your eyes and you smell that forest floor. You know, some of that eucalyptus, right, right. some of that mint, and some of that forest floor. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I just, a little mushroom, yeah. too. Yeah, Just In love a good that. Way. Yeah. yeah. And again, so perfect for food pairings and things like that, mm -hmm. and so balanced. And think about this, Scott. I love, I like California cabs, too. But this at retail, $30, yeah, $32, or 35 in some places. Yeah. Compare that to something from, something domestic, we're probably fifty to sixty. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's yeah. it's a great value. This would be a very food friendly wine. Oh, absolutely. You know, some cabernets can be a little almost too powerful for food. For me, this would just you know I would love, and I don't mean to demean this wine at all. But if I had the perfect hamburger, this, I love hamburgers. This would be the it. perfect cabernet to have. Yeah, with the perfect hamburger. Absolutely. Yeah, we should go get one. Let's do it. Yeah. Where are we going? Clyde's. It's right downstairs. Yeah. No, this is great. And I really, uh, I genuinely appreciate you bringing these wines in and giving me an education, both not just in your career, which is fascinating, but also in Australia. Because uh, I do forget, even having just been there, I do forget how massive it is and all the different regions. And like you said, they're doing, you know, more of a feminine or, or lighter or elegant styled 
Shiraz, which they are now calling Syrah. Especially from the West. Yeah. Especially from which the West. Which is really kind of cool. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for exposing us. Can you please just remind our listeners what are the three wines we tried? Absolutely. So the first wine was the Zante's Footstep Scarlet Lady Bird Rosé. 2019. 2019, made with Sangiovese grapes. The second wine was also from Zante's Footsteps, and this is the Love Symbol Grenache 2017. This is McLaren Vale as well as the Rosé. And the last one was the Domaine Naturaliste Rebus Cabernet 2016 from Margaret River, uh, Australia. As my friends down in uh, Australia would say, Good day, mate. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Follow me on Twitter and don't forget to listen to The Wine of the Week every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. And remember, until next time, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.